0: You're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. This is Down East Mike. You're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast. Lucky you. I am the host, Down East Mike. Dumped unceremoniously in his chair, kicked out of bed, pushed downstairs, and said, get to it. Put something out there that will entertain folks and get them started on their Friday. So when they're out and about and kicking about the stores and the retail shops and the factories and the streets and byways and coastal waters of Maine. So when they're out there, they've got something to think about other than their day ahead. They can use on things that Downey's Mike told them, and they can speculate and ruminate and all that stuff. We've had some fun times already. We have so many more ahead of us. Now, we should start off with our disclaimer that some of this is whimsy, some of this is true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. This is Friday, April 22nd. 2022 if you need to be reminded of what year it is because many days i certainly do in today's episode we have a main judge who's affirming that the intertidal zone belongs to private property owners they're the ones that want to get uh they're the ones that want to you know claw back their clam ownership apparently we'll get to that story in a minute Also on this day, there were torpedoes in the Portland Harbor and Cuba blockade began. began. And this was on April 22nd, 1898. Oh, how times have changed. Somewhat concerning today, we don't have a main mammal of the moment, but we do have a bi-weekly bird. So we're gonna have a bird of the day. And that is something actually to look forward to at the end of the podcast. We'll get to that bi-weekly bird. Our word of the day is cynosure, or cynosure. And this is C-Y-N-O-S-U-R-E. The definition is the northern constellation Ursa Minor, also the North Star. One that serves to direct or guide a center of attraction or attention. Uh, here we use it in the sentence. They have turned an eyesore into a cynosure. His rapidly increasing wealth has made him a cynosure in political circles. Did you know, category, ancient mariners noted that all the stars in the heavens seemed to revolve around a particular star and they relied on it to guide their navigation. The constellation that this bright star appears in is known to English speakers today as Ursa Minor or the Little Dipper, but the ancient Greeks called it the Kynosauro, a term that comes from the phrase meaning dog's tail. That word passed into Latin and Middle French becoming cynosure. While English speakers adopted the term in the mid 16th century, and then they used it as a name for the constellation and the star, which is also known as the North Star and used to identify a guide of any kind. By the early 17th century, Cynosure was also being used figuratively for anything or anyone that, like the North Star, was the focus of attention or observation. Um, we have uh, recent examples on the web. Brady was fortunate to come along just as the NFL altered multiple playing rules that made the quarterback the cynosure of a pass-happy high-scoring game with fleet receivers unfettered to dash upfield for long passes. That seems like an awful wordy way to say that he was a good football player. That was from the New York Times. It was first used in the year 1565. And some of the other words at that time were uh, achiever, abruptly, flamingo, headship, Trivy purse, what is that? Plausible, roving, rundle, saddened, hoodman, blind, graybeard, girlish, and gizzard. Wow, that's a whole lot of words, 1565. Well, let's go to our birthdays. Happy birthday today to Jake in Millinocket. Jake will be 18, he's a senior. He's gonna be attending college in Daytona next fall. Happy birthday, Jake. Samir of Freeport, Maine, turns 48. Happy birthday, Samir. Samir worked for a large retailer in Freeport, doesn't want us to report who, because he intends to call out sick today on his birthday. Well, happy birthday, Samir. You have a good time today, and you'll make that time up, I'm sure. Well, in the modern news today, a Maine judge has affirmed that the intertidal zone belongs to private property owners. A lot of controversy there. The Cumberland County Superior Court Justice has said that the land between the high and low tide marks on main beaches belongs to the private property owners, not the state. Now, he did not rule on whether the public could use that land for activities like running. Now, if you're a really good runner and you had a long stride, I guess you could leap over the marked off places the ruling dealt a blow to the nearly two dozen plaintiffs who had filed a lawsuit to overturn the private ownership of the intertidal zone. Superior Court Justice John O'Neill Jr. dismissed nearly all the claims and half of the defendants in an order this week, but he also allowed that a future order could expand the allowed uses on that public land and the entire case still could be bound for the state's top court. This kind of controversy has been going on for years. Most coastal states own the land between the low and high tide marks on their beaches. About 30 years ago, the main uh, judicial court ruled that private owners own all the way to the low tide line. and It also said that the public has limited rights to use the intertidal zone for fishing, fouling, and navigation. So, I guess you could be in the right if you always carried a fishing line, you had a bird tied to your shoulder or your waist belt or something, and you had uh, some sort of flashlight for navigation. You could do that and you could be within your rights to be wandering around in the intertidal zone. Uh, some of the people that filed suit the plaintiffs would be seaweed harvesters and processors, clamors, wormers, and oyster farmers. These are people that have owned property near Moody Beach and Wells. That was the kind of the focus of the, the rulings from the 1980s on. They, um, the plaintiffs uh, issued a statement on Wednesday that did not address the sweeping dismissal. He also did not answer follow-up questions. Uh, he's just saying that uh, the decision proves what every miner who relies on our shoreline knows to be true. Means intertidal problem is far from settled. Now this correspondent has some kind of vague family uh, memory of being on the shore and I think we were having like a simple clam bake, lobster bake, may have been in the Bay Harbor area back in the 70s and I remember there was some objection because we were uh, presenting somewhat of a blight on the landscape and one of the wealthier landowners nearby had complained about us and said, they are lighting a fire on our shore. So these kinds of things, they, they're personal, they've gone on for a long time and we'll see how that all shakes out. Well, we have some uh, a little Funny story. We'll get back to that one in a second. But this day in 1898, Cuba was shut out from the world. The Lewiston Evening Journal had some blaring headlines. Supplies of food, fuel, or ammunition cannot reach the isolated Spaniards without aid of greater power than Uncle Sam's fleet. Another headline, Captain Sampson holds the key to Havana's front door. Uh, President, this would have been McKinley, president issues a proclamation announcing to the world the blockade of Cuban ports and the volunteer bill becomes a law at 2.35 p.m. today. A call for 100,000 volunteers to be made immediately, probably Saturday morning this day in 1898. That story about the torpedoes in Portland Harbor, the Lighthouse Board has issued the following very important order. Notice is hereby given that on and after Tuesday, April 26, 1898, and until further orders, all channels leading to Portland Harbor from sea will be closed to navigation by a system of explosive torpedoes. And all masters of vessels are forbidden to attempt to pass through any except the channel from the southward between Portland Head and Cushing Island. And using this channel, caution must be exercised. And then they go on to give some instructions. Black and white perpendicular striped spar buoys one quarter of a mile apart on a line of bearing, blah, blah, blah and at night being abreast of Portland Head light. You basically, you don't wanna hit these torpedo buoys. Okay, folks, in these forbidden passages, all buoys will be removed and it would be extremely hazardous, hazardous to attempt to pass through them. And that was by the lighthouse board, Thomas Perry. I think my great great grandfather was lighthouse keeper Wood Island benefit at the time. They also had a story in here about Belfast. The mayor of Belfast was all concerned and wanted—he wanted some militia there to guard Belfast Harbor from the Spaniards. This was some heady times. They were going to test the five guns at the Portland Head Battery. Be tested on May second. Two United States officers came to Popham Beach on Thursday for the purpose of making arrangements for the fortifications at the mouth of the Kennebec. The Bath Times says it has been decided not to adopt the plan of mounting the big guns on the sand, but give them a position on the high ledge between the fort and the barn north of the sergeant's house. From the position selected on the ledge, the guns will be able to cover the entrance to the river in excellent shape. It is understood that 40 men will begin the work of moving and mounting the guns and erecting fortifications immediately. The Eastport Brass Band, so important when you're fighting the war to have a brass band nearby. The Eastport Brass Band of 18 members by a unanimous vote have tendered their services to the government through governor powers. You need that brass band. On the train, another story here, on the train which reached Bangor from St. John, New Brunswick Thursday, were eight or ten young men from New Brunswick who were going to Augusta. They were hoping to find a chance to enlist and help liberate Cuba. On the same car was a soldier lately dispatched from the garrison at Halifax, Nova Scotia, who informed a reporter that all British troops were hoping that England would turn to and help the United States against Spain. They were really geared up to have this battle. We found a cute little uh, story in here that we thought we should relate from 1898. Uh, Injured pride at the loss of a prized mustache. This is from San Francisco. Not less than three inches in width and six inches from tip to tip. It was removed from the plaintiff whilst he was asleep under a hot towel in a barber shop. And this lawsuit had been filed, found out today, in a suit for $290. It filed in San Francisco Justice Court. The suit was brought by James T. McGuire of Bakersfield Golf and Country Club against Henry Jacoby the barber. And the complaint set forth that as a result of the said mustache, having been willfully and maliciously shorn from the face of said plaintiff. Said plaintiff has materially decreased in his personal appearance before the public. His younger children are not able to recognize him, and the plaintiff has extreme difficulty in being recognized at banks, restaurants, garages, golf courses, and other places where plaintiff has business. So that's why, and it occurred to me as I was reading that story, that occurred to me, that's why I have such little public recognitions because my six-inch mustache was shaved off a few years ago, so now my younger children don't recognize me either. Let's get back to our war story because this kind of goes on and on, and it's so exciting. The National Association of American Homing Pigeon Fanciers of the United States, whose headquarters are in Baltimore, has offered its pigeons, numbering 40,000 birds, to the Secretary of Navy. These will be used in case of war as a means of communication between warships at sea and the government. Edwin Baker, the president of the association, says that the birds are already being put into training and in a short time will have recovered from the winter stiffness and be ready for active service. In the event of war with Spain or any other maritime nation, a great cause of anxiety in official circles will be difficulty of communicating with the warships or squadrons at sea out of reach of telegraph, and also in places where sending of dispatch boats will be impracticable. Means of communicating a naval battle or other important information by established methods under such circumstances will be totally lacking and the naval officers and the government might be placed in a dilemma on this account. The only known method of communicating between such unconnected points is by pigeons. By this means, the result of a battle two or three hundred miles at sea could be learned in a day. Wow, tremendous. Uh, We looked at the history.state.gov website, a little bit of uh, filling in the missing details on that uh, Spanish-American conflict. The Spanish government rejected the U.S. ultimatum and immediately severed diplomatic relations with the United States. McKinley responded, by implementing a naval blockade of Cuba on April 22nd and issued a call, they're saying for 125,000 military volunteers, the following day. That same day, Spain declared war in the United States. U.S. Congress uh, voted to go to war against Spain on April 25th. The future Secretary of State John Hay described the ensuing conflict as a splendid little war. The first battle was fought on May 1st, Manila Bay, when Commander George Dewey's Asiatic Squadron defeated the Spanish naval force that was defending the Philippines. Kind of goes on and on there. Uh, after isolating and defeating the Spanish army garrisons in Cuba, the U.S. Navy destroyed the Spanish Caribbean Squadron on July 3rd as it attempted to escape the blockade at Santiago. Uh, on July 26, at the behest of the Spanish government, the French ambassador in Washington, Jules Cambon, approached the McKinley administration to discuss peace terms, and a ceasefire was signed on August 12. The war officially ended four months later. So that was the Spanish American War. We found a nice little advertisement on this same edition. I have just arrived with a car of Kansas horses. Am at Curtis's Stable, Middle Street, it's Ben Lewiston, opposite the square. Some large draft, medium farm, and grocery horses, and some fancy drivers and four nice saddlers. So you'd be a little bit late to the party, but and you you know you definitely missed it. But they did have some Kansas horses for you to look at. Some of the other ads at that time. The main steamship company, New York Direct Line, Long Island Sound by Daylight. Three trips a week. The steamships Manhattan and John English, alternately leave Franklin Wharf Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays at 6 p.m. bound for New York Direct. They returning Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays at 5 p.m. They're superbly fitted and finished for passenger travel and afford the most convenient and comfortable route between Portland and New York. One way fare is $4, round trip is six. That was in 1898. Some of the uh, help wanted ads, wanted a table girl and a kitchen girl at the Hampshire house in Auburn. Here's another one wanted, man and wife without children or single woman, a woman to work in my family, and a man to work upon my farm. To experience help, I'll pay good wages." That was Fred Penley in Auburn, was looking for a little hired help there. Uh, they were looking for a pantaloon maker. None other need apply, you must be experienced. And that's Fred White in, in the city, 125 Main Street. So we had one, one other one here. Uh, All persons to know that Ward Brothers at the Auburn Stove Foundry do all kinds of nickel and copper plating with reasonable terms. We found this story about a great commotion in the water a mile or so offshore, noticed by people on the beach near Saco on Thursday. It was at first thought to be caused by a submarine. This proved to be incorrect, but it was worn nevertheless the commotion proving to be caused by a monster school of pollock chasing a school of fish. In a few minutes from whalebone rock to shore was packed with fish. Some of them came up high on the beach and the lifesavers captured about 50 of them. Now, I, I read once that uh, when the, uh, the colonists were first settled in here in America, the, there, was, there were so many big lobsters that they were, they were getting like three-foot lobsters that would come right up on shore. They're probably hundreds of years old. That was before they were actively lobster fishing. Well, let's see, we had a Bertha Venita Stone. She was three years old. She was, unfortunately was struck by an electric car on Thursday, 1898. One of the rear war- wheels uh, went over her left leg and very much injured it. It's reported that the motorman was in no way responsible. The child with two others was standing in the street watching the car, and just as the forward platform passed the group, it said that the Vanita Stone child made a dash for the car with the result above reported. Car number 16 also ran over the Brown Boy about a year ago. A lot of trouble, these electric cars. We have a story from the Rockland Courier Gazette. This is a little more modern, but we had to throw it in because it was a good one. St. George Police Chief Meryl Mincy Jr. was tucked away in a cul de sac watching the passing traffic the other evening, just listening and, and observing, ready to roll if a hot shot rolled by. This is in the 60s. A car showed up moving along, but inside the limit. What caused Mincy to hit the starter was the fact that the passing car was running with one dead headlight. Just as the car was passing the hideaway slot where it, Mincy was packed, he took his eyes off the road area for a second to turn the ignition key. But there was only one car out there, even if he didn't see its maker color and he went after it. Two miles down the road he caught up to it and it was a state police cruiser with Trooper Charles Fullborn at the wheel. Mincy, all smiles, was all set to write out an equipment check notice, one of those 24-hour cards the state cops are hitting all the rest of us with, when Philip Brown said for Mincy to hold it for a moment. The trooper then literally kicked the front fender and the headlight came on. But is it legal? That's from the Courier-Gazette. That's a cute little story. Well, our peaks of interest today, we're looking at Mount Hope in Maine. Elevation 680 feet, it's in the county of York, town of Sanford. Not a lot about Mount Hope, except that it used to be the site of a women fire watcher was staffed there, where they watched the fire. Uh, if we look at the Lewiston Evening Journal from 1971, Mount Hope Lookout is located about three miles southwest of the business district of Sanford. On the hill is the fire tower, along with the antenna and a microwave tower about 680 feet above sea level. A road goes by the end of the driveway, which is about 800 feet long. The Mount Hope lookout was started in 1963 and replaced the Ridley Hill Tower in Shapley, which is located about six miles northwest of Mount Hope. The tower which stands on Mount Hope used to be on Sebattis Mountain in Lovell, Maine. And it was there in that tower that Charlton Merrill started out in Forestry as the watchman on Sebattis He continued with the forestry service for many years, most recently as the boss of District 1. And he gave it up because of illness. He was a great boss and Forestry will never really be able to replace him. Uh, the forestry service discontinued the Sabatis lookout, and eventually that tower was moved to Mount Hope. It seems that some of them lead a long life. Most towers now are steel. The tower framework is about 60 feet from top to bottom. The roof is of wood, but the sides are steel, and the sections of the windows tip out instead of sliding sideways or up or down. They're describing it a stairway, leading up to a trap door in the cab. I'm getting better to go just reading this. Some cabs are 14 by 14 feet, but this one is seven feet square with a map table in the center, a couple of small corner shelves, and two shelves overhead in corners for the radios. Also a chair for sitting when things are going at a slow pace. As you know, those fire towers, it's usually a fast pace. In the main forestry service at this time, There were 45 towers, two of which were served by women. Miss Anna Woodward, who entered the service in 1964 on Mount Hope Lookout in the organized towns area, will return this April for her eighth consecutive year. Over the years, several women have worked on the towers, some only a year, others longer. Uh, Anna says, my father worked as a forest ranger for the state since 1948, retiring a few years ago. I guess I I have inherited fire in my veins. He had tried to talk me into taking a tower job when there'd be an opening, so in the fall of 64, I agreed to help out when someone wanted to get through, and I've been here ever since. Anna describes her days as, Starting in the spring when the snow goes and the fire danger begins. And in the fall, it depends on the weather, such as fall rains or snow, and a drop in the fire danger. We usually figure on going to work here in the southern part in the spring sometime around the 1st of April, finish up in the fall in November. My tower day begins at 9 a.m. and ends at 6 p.m., And of course, sometimes we're asked to go to work early or stay later if there's a fire going in our area or if the fire danger is high. We are on a non-scheduled work week, which means that we in fire control sometimes can be on duty and put in a lot of hours in a week, especially spring and fall. Uh, When it's a rainy day or a day when there's no need to be in the tower, there's other work to be done, such as painting buildings, keeping grounds cleaned up. Trails and pole lines brushed out, buildings and tower repaired, equipment in working order, whatever else may need doing. For equipment, they had a watchman's uh, equipment list of a map, two-way radio, telephone, and binoculars. The map is on a table-like stand in the center of the tower room set on true north. It is taken from a highway map and shows the area for a certain tower. This map, also on its outer edge, has the compass bearings or degrees for helping to pinpoint a smoke. Also on the map is an alidade, which is a movable arm that will move in a circle, thus uh, finding the, uh, the smoke bearings. So they, then they take a two-way radio on the forestry wave, wavelength and it's tied into other towers and mobile units. From there, they can communicate with uh, fire departments. They can talk to towns in Arundel and York. They also had a telephone, but I think those were gradually going away. Very exciting things. That was Mount Hope. Not Again, not a lot on that as, as far as a, you know, a hiker's mountain. It's not, not all that tall. Well, we don't have a main mammal at the moment, but we do have a bi-weekly bird. Our bird today is the Lapland longspur, Calcareous laponicus. It, uh, it's like a horned lark or pipit, or other longspur. Uh, birds of open country, and in flight they appear to have a shorter tail. Similar species, uh, the Smith's longspur. It uh, it's a small migratory songbird. It breeds in the Arctic regions of Canada and Alaska, and is the only longspur to breed in the Arctic regions of Eurasia, where it is known as the Lapland Bunting. The species is highly migratory. Uh, the Lapland Longspur is small but sturdy, varying in length from six to six and a half inches but weighing over an ounce, has short legs, typical of species that breed in the high Arctic. It has a stout yellow bill designed for eating seeds, and the longspur spends most of its time on the ground feeding on grasses and plants. The name longspur derives from the long claw on its hind toe, the utility of which is yet to be fully determined by ornithologists. Unlike sparrows and most other buntings, long spurs walk on the ground instead of hopping. Now, I saw uh, some long spurs once in Nova Scotia on a snowy uh, uh, night, and uh, they're, they're kind of magical to see them in the car headlights is one of the, one of the ways that you would see them. Uh, From back in 1895, a little article about it, I've never seen this bird. It's an extremely rare winter visitant, but several years ago it was observed in this vicinity. Two years ago it was seen in company with snow buntings and alone. Sometimes it's found in company with horned larks. Uh, That's from the Lewiston Saturday Journal, 1895, December 14th. One may discover a shy siskin, among a flock of gold pinches or start a flock of snow buntings from the weeds of a snowbound meadow. Along our coast, the shore locks and now and then a Lapland longspur are seen feeding about the beach grass. The hovering gulls sail leisurely around our ice harbors in company with the whistlers. Well, that's about our our podcast for today. We'll take a quick look at the uh, weather forecast uh, for today, Friday, April 22nd. Uh, Isolated showers between 2 and 3 p.m., otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 58. So a nice day today. For Saturday, sunny, high near 57. We have winds up to 10 miles per hour out of the northwest. And for Sunday, partly sunny with a high near fifty. 55. So some nice days ahead. Well, that's our podcast for today. We do thank you for listening. You can send along your your comments and uh, and suggestions to Mike at DownEastMike.com. And until next time, this is Downey's Mike, wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you.